rising up, get ready, I'm not gonna take no more There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul Buckle up, get ready, we're not gonna sit back Hello friends, neighbors, citizens of the world I'm Michael James and I'm your host for this morning's edition of the Live from the Heartland show uh, As many of you know, we've been doing this uh, uh, online uh, with a Zoom recording it rather than being in the wonderful studios of WLUW. This is number 94 of Heartland at Home for the week of March 26. It is broadcast live on Saturday morning and it's also on YouTube and a number of other places. Um, we want to always thank Kev Mo for his opening tune, Stand Up and Be Strong here in Chicago and many other places across the land and in the world. Uh, people are standing up and being strong, taking a stand on many positions, trying to make the world a better place. And we try to bring you some interesting guests who uh, share our vision of the world sometimes and uh, care about what's going on with other people. Uh, and this morning, we're going to have the noted uh, folk singer, uh, songwriter, and now playwright, uh, Kristen Lems, and she's going to tell us about her new play. And then we're going to have the incomparable Larry Sufferden of the Cook County Board, and he is retiring, and we're going to grill him on uh, things past, present, and his hopes for the future. So stay tuned for the next uh, hour, and we're going to have uh, some good conversation. I'm going to start off by sharing um, that I have with me today uh, Emilio Davis, who is our producer and engineer and he probably will not show his face today, but in the future, he's gonna show up now and then uh, with some commentary, particularly in the area of sport. Um, a little bit of information about things going on in the world and some good things and some bad things that you may wanna know about. Uh, for the first time in 400 years, beavers roam the riverways north of London um, or in North London, I'm not sure which it is. Uh, after several years of costly flood management, conservationists in Enfield decided to experiment with natural flood management projects, such as the beaver project. Uh, it reintroduced the indigenous rodent to a habitat it hasn't been in for centuries. And um, it just says, uh, the beaver dams slow river flow. They boost the biodiversity by creating habitats for other creatures and mitigate flood risks, protecting hundreds of homes and preventing thousands of British ponds in damage costs. Okay, that's a good one. We like the beavers. And, uh, you know, beaver is a symbol of Canada. And let me just say that up in Canada, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has made a deal between the Liberal Party and the New Democratic Party, which is a bit to his left, uh, to work in sync and secure his position at least for the next uh, period of time. Uh, I think that's a good move uh, after uh, we had conservative truckers uh, uh, trying to stop all kind of activity throughout Canada and along the border. Uh, a little bit more information, let's go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court nominee, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson has now completed three days of questioning from lawmakers in the Senate Judiciary Committee in a historic meeting, she will be the first uh, African-American woman on the court if she gets there, and chances are she will. Republicans, though, have been laying into her with heavy criticisms throughout the hearings, uh, the most frequent being the claim that she has been too light in sentencing child pornographers. Uh, one of the most vocal and aggressive of these uh, senators with pseudo-populist and far-right ideology is Josh Hawley of Missouri, um, whom Illinois Senator and Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin denounced as using the accusations as an opportunity uh, to showcase talking points for the November election. I mean, if you've been watching these hearings, uh, they do not listen to what she says and what other people say, and they go after her on a number of fronts, which really are, well, it's despicable, if you ask me. And speaking of the Supreme Court, <clears throat> many of you know that the longest member on the Supreme Court and one of the most conservatives is, um, his name is Clarence Thomas. And Clarence Thomas 
has been in the hospital. He's out today. Uh, and we are recording on Friday, the 25th for broadcast on the 26th and the week of the 26th. Uh, and Thomas is now out, but we found a little bit of news about his wife. Now she's a longtime conservative activist and her name is Ginny Thomas. And she, it uh, turns out, has pre had pressed Donald Trump's chief of staff to overturn the 2020 vote. And a text message between the wife of Justice Thomas, that would be Ginny Thomas, and Mark Meadows um, are the first evidence, this text are the first evidence that she directly advised the White House to reverse the election results. Get that. The wife of a Supreme Court judge is saying that the Biden didn't win the election and pressed the conservative uh, government at the time uh, would be the Trumpites, Trumpites, the Trump government, uh, to overturn the election. <clears throat> okay, let's bring it closer to home while integrating it with the rest of the world. We've all been following the tragic situation in the Ukraine. We know that many, many refugees are um, have left the, the Ukraine and are gone to many places. President Biden in his talk uh, in Europe uh, on Wednesday said that the United States would welcome 100,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees. And we found a little bit of information here about our mayor, Mayor Lightfoot. She announced that she has been working closely with the Ukrainian and Polish communities in Chicago to accept and provide care and employment for an incoming stream of Ukrainian refugees who will be pouring in from Warsaw a city which has seen over 300,000 refugees arrive since the invasion began a month ago. Mayor Lightfoot joined a video conference with Warsaw Mayor Rafael Traskowski to discuss logistics to coordinate a steady and efficient influx of refugees from Warsaw to Chicago, as well as plans to set up reception stations, which, which will provide medical attention, mental health resources, food, sanitation, et cetera. Uh, Chicago's always been good at welcoming refugees. Rogers Park has an awful lot of uh, refugee communities over the years that I've been living up here. And we all know that there are a lot of Ukrainians living in Chicago. And I think that the Ukrainians who have had to leave Ukraine will be welcomed here. So get ready for an influx of new arrivals here in the wonderful city of Chicago. And I think that will be it for uh, the banter this morning. Uh, let's turn to our first guest. But first, uh, we're going to tell you that you are listening to the Live from the Heartland show on WLUW 88.7. And uh, when we return with our guest, it will be after we have played her, and then we're talking Kristen Lems, um, her trailer to her new play, um, which is called St. Jane and the Wicked Wicks. And she'll tell us a little bit about that in just a moment. Stay tuned. You are listening or watching the Live from the Heartland show. I'm Jane Adams. Hull House is a settlement house. We offer classes and clubs, a public kitchen, meeting rooms, English classes for immigrants, book binding, hot showers. Can I take one down? Of course. Can I read it? Of course, Nellie. Isn't this their third eviction? Yes. Wicks threw what little furniture they possessed right out the window and just missed a passerby. Unfortunately, their mother turns a blind eye. She even encourages it. Jean, I'm going to get this job. Go on the stage and go on the road before Ma drags me into her line of work. Nellie is a foolish girl. She laughs too much. She thinks she's a dancer. No end of trouble. And what on earth do you want from me, Mrs. Wicks? They always manage to forget Let's about the frank, women, the don't they? sex has not been treated fairly. We can do it. Time to do it. Women working in the sweatshops, just surviving barely. Time to do it. We can do it. 
you're a real lady, do you now? I know what you are, Miss Jane Adams. Aunt Jane, you're my only friend. My dear girl. Welcome back to Live from the Heartland for the week of March 26th, and I'm Michael James. And whether you're listening to it or watching it, uh, that last uh, bit of music and conversation was from a new play, uh, audio musical by the one, the only Kristen Lems. And we're going to hear a little bit more about this play and who knows what else. Good morning, Kristen. How are you? Good morning. Very well. How are you? Nice to be here. It looks great. Your hair is longer than mine, and you, uh, you're you in a nice spot. Uh, where are you with that lighthouse? Well, where I actually am is in my own bedroom, but I took this photo when I was on one of the Wendella boat tours several years ago. We were right out by this, uh, is it a pumping station? or? Uh, and I just, I love it because it reminds me of the wide open spaces of Lake, Lake Michigan. Ah, it's nice, and you look great. So, uh, you know, you've won a lot of... Uh, accolades as a writer, a composer, a performing artist, <clears throat> but now you've got a full-length musical. Uh, tell us what you what inspired you to do this. Tell us the name. Well, I'll tell the name. It's St. Jane and the Wicked Wicks, and how you're connected to this. Fill us in. Thanks so much. Well, I could say that this was a couple years in the making, but it's really probably more like 35 years in the making. <laughs> because I was always made aware of the fact that my great-grandmother, Nellie Wicks, had a long-term relationship with Jane Addams. Uh, we were told that from, you know, the, the very beginning. But as the years passed um, and my mother got more and more interested in this, other family members started sending her materials. And it ends up that we have a, a full-length memoir by my great-aunt that was uh, Nellie Wicks' oldest child. My grandmother wrote uh, some kind of memoir, and then I've actually got a 57-page handwritten autobiography by Nellie Wicks. So as I learned more and more about this family history and the relationship with Hull House, I decided that somebody had to tell the story, and my mother was very much encouraging that it should I should be the one. So because I'm a songwriter, um, I, I sculpted it into a musical over time, and um, then uh, when the whole you know, world collapsed with the pandemic, I realized that there was an art form that I had available to me that I wouldn't have had if there hadn't been a pandemic, which was an audio musical that we could actually record the parts and, and put it online without being in the room together. So <laughs> I assembled a, a cast, I, I hired a director, he held auditions, Nobody was ever in the same room. Uh, do, you, uh, do you ever plan to bring it to the stage? Uh, you know, I grew up uh, hearing a lot of musicals, although I wasn't very interested in them. Uh, I was more into, you know, the new rock and roll and stuff. But my dad was a big fan of musicals and went on to produce plays on Broadway, like Man really? of La Mancha was his oh. most successful. And um, I'm just... Uh, do you have hopes to inspire to bring it to Broadway? Absolutely. I, I absolutely believe this is this is doable. It's it's stageable. Um, we've got all the parts uh, written out. I mean, piano parts and, um, it, you know, it's it's a book um, and a, a score that can be used. So I was kind of trying to pursue Rockford University to be the the debut for this because um, Jane Addams graduated from there. But yeah, and we were actually in conversations and then everything exploded. And, you know, I kind of feel like in the next year or two, everybody's going to want the, the old favorites to reassure themselves that there's still a world. But then I would hope, you know, maybe somebody in Chicago, maybe UIC would like to produce this show. You know, you may want to talk to uh, Fred Anzavino and those people with Theo Uboke. They do a lot of musicals. Oh. And, uh, you know, that, that that's something. But it's really... Uh, it's pretty neat. So why don't we, uh, you take this opportunity to tell people who may not know who Jane Addams is. Chicago people know her pretty well. They hear the name a lot, at least. I think it's probably taught in school, but give us a little bit of background on Jane Addams. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, not only do a lot of people not know a lot about her, they think of her as an old dowdy, you know, lady all hunched over. Uh, this is during the time period she was 30 years old, up to 45, very dynamic, full of energy. She founded America's first settlement house, Hull House, which is still standing. The original building is at 800 South Halstead. And she and her group of merry women reformers, and then some men later, but mostly women in the beginning, they just spun off all these new organizations. Uh, astonishing, working with juvenile justice, working with immigrant justice, uh, labor rights, um, you name it, they were doing it. And Hull House became this wonderful beehive of activity with all kinds of classes, they had citizenship classes for new immigrants. It was a largely immigrant neighborhood in the 19th Ward. And uh, Jane Addams and Ellen Gates Starr and many other women at Hull House, Julia Lathrop, they were all very involved with, uh, with the neighborhood. And Jane was from a somewhat wealthy background. She was from landed gentry, so to speak, in uh, northwestern Illinois in the, the Rockford area, um, Cedarville to be specific. And her father was a state senator and was a personal friend of Abraham Lincoln. So um, she grew up, she was born in 1860 and she always had this very strong sense of justice and um, the, the side of the Civil War that, you know, that Abraham Lincoln uh, came out of that he led. So she had a very, very strong um, Northern background. I, I believe her father was Quaker um, so there were all those Quaker beliefs. But when she decided to jump ship and move into the ghetto in Chicago, it really did take everybody by surprise because that wasn't what a genteel lady of the time did. Well, how does your family fit into this? Because tell us, actually, we uh, people either if they're listening to the show or watching it on YouTube, uh, they'll they will see the trailer that we opened up the segment with. And tell us what we we heard in that or what we see. Yeah, we actually, and the C is a, another question. Tell us what's, what that's about. And then I want to ask you about the photographs that are in this audio version. Great. Thank you. Well, um, my actual great grandmother was named Nellie Wicks, and she met Jane Addams, Ellen Gates Starr and Julia Lathrop on the night of March 17th, I think it was uh, 1890 when she was living with her alcoholic father and cruel mother at 801 South Halstead. Yes, <laughs> 801 South Halstead is now a parking garage. And I have taken photos of it saying, this is where my people, you know, <laughs> it's sort of haunted. But um, Nellie was 12 years old. She rushed across the street, banged on their door and asked for help because her father was beating her mother and her mother was in labor. So these three women came across the muddy street late at night, lifting up their skirts to go over the mud, and they chased away this drunken batterer, and they called the doctor, and uh, the baby was born. And that started a long, 30-year-long relationship between my great-grandmother Nellie Wicks and Jane Addams. Um, it was not a love affair. It was mostly something like Jane, uh, Nellie Wicks going for help for, to Jane Addams. Uh, she came, asked for, you know, handouts every Christmas. She'd go and say, please. And um, Jane was always generous and sweet with her. And there are three major incidents in the play where Jane Addams basically redeemed or saved my great grandmother and her family. Um, she moved her out of the abusive relationship she'd been in with her drunken father and cruel mother. And she, uh, Jane Adams actually set her up in, in, um, in a house in uh, the south side of Chicago in Englewood. So, um, I mean, Jane was there all along. And also Jane paid for the burial of one of Nellie's babies because at the time it was considered the most horrible thing if a baby would be thrown into a pauper's grave. Uh, with no you know, headstone or anything. And Jane Addams actually had this baby buried. Uh, she did all kinds of kind things. And it's crazy because you think, well, maybe Jane Addams wasn't as good, you know, one-on-one -on -one as she was to the public. She was that good. <laughs> she was kind, understanding, a great listener. She had a fabulous sense of humor. And I want people to know about that Jane Addams. And this is a story that has not been told 
I have a whole shelf of books about Jane Addams. Literally, there are so many biographies, but no one knows this story until now because it was unpublished. It's in my family. Is uh, Nellie on your mom or your dad's side? My mom's. It's my mom's mom's mom. <laughs> so. And uh, whatever happened to Nellie's parents? Did they ever uh, be redeemed and change in any way? Or they? Yeah. Well, the the drunken father uh, abandoned the family, ran away, and we don't even know where he died. Or, you know, we're glad he abandoned the family because he beat everybody to smithereens. Or, you know, he destroyed all four of his children in one way or another. But the mother uh, did remarry, and she actually died in a carbon monoxide accident uh, in Maywood uh, much later. But um, as Nellie said in her own memoir, she never shed a single tear when her mother died. Her mother, so to speak, really was Jane Addams, though the, the age difference wasn't that great. She was like this benevolent presence in Nellie's life. And how did Nellie fare in the end of her life? Not very well. Um, she married four times um, and they didn't have social security or any of the minimal comforts that a poor person would have. Um, she had two disabled daughters whom she lived with until she died. And there was a tiny pension from the state uh, pension for the blind because one of them was pretty much blind and that's all Nellie lived on. Uh, it was very miserable. Um, she tried to sell things door to door. Uh, it was a miserable life and her happiest time was was her relationship with Jane Addams. And of course, my grandmother very much benefited from the relationship with Hull House because my grandmother and her older sister were invited to Hull House for fancy dinners to show how these these kids, these poor kids could learn table manners and be very polite. <laughs> so, Kristen, yeah. Kristen Lems, what's the, uh, what happened to Hull House? We know that the original Hull House is standing over on Halstead. I remember when there was a Hull House on, uh, Broadway right near Belmont. I remember the Hull House on uh, Beacon Street, I think in Uptown. Yep. Uh, what's the, is any of that left or what's the status? Some of them were renamed and sort of taken over by other entities. So, um, and there was also the Mary Crane Day Nursery. And when you look online, it, there's still a, a listing for Mary Crane Nursery, which is run by another entity now. But what happened to a lot of, of Hull House initiatives was that they either they got spun off and renamed and taken over by other organizations, or some of them were defunded and, and died. And of course, you know, the whole neighborhood was completely changed when UIC came in and they destroyed Maxwell Street and, you know, a lot of the, the actual <laughs> geography around that area changed, including Blue Island, which is one of the many homes that my family lived on. And you can't find Blue Island anymore. It's it's disappeared. They were evicted constantly. I mean, I have a list of 12 addresses around Chicago that they lived in, usually briefly. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the, the societies that still exist were founded by the, the women and men of Hull House. And I should also add that um, John Dewey was a very good friend of Jane Addams, and he fashioned the, uh, the, the University of Chicago um, Lab School. Uh, lab school after the concepts of Hull House. So that definitely still exists and has been an important influence. John Dewey used to come and eat dinner there because he wanted to know how the real people thought. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, well, I would, when I watched the trailer and some of the, of the uh, audio version, there's, there are photographs in there of, uh, you know, people at work, uh, kind of rough conditions. Tell us a little bit about the photographs and maybe the people who play the parts. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I own a signed photograph that Jane Adams gave to Nellie Wicks, which was handed down to my grandmother, my mother, and now to me. And there's also a photograph of my mother in a sweater that Jane Adams knitted for her, which is pretty wow. amazing. <laughs> among the many things Jane Adams did was that she knitted. And she would give hand knitted sweaters to newborn babies in the neighborhood. So that's really cool. But, um, you know, at the time in the 1890s, this, this takes place between 1890 and 1905. And this was the period of time when women were moving from doing piecework in their homes to starting to do factory work. Right. So Nellie actually did not do piecework. She worked in a laundry 
and she was working 10 hour days, uh, six days a week for six hours, $6 a week, always standing. They were doing hand washing. You know, they dip these, these uh, bed sheets into these big steaming tubs of hot water. Um, it was a very miserable time, but it did start to bring women together as an industrial force because they weren't at home uh, knitting and, you know, sewing things anymore. Nellie was out there in the world meeting other working women. So that was very powerful change at that time. And then, of course, the huge influx of immigrants at this time. Um, I think the 19th Ward was 60% immigrant. Um, it just so happened my family was not immigrant born. They were about third generation American by then. So um, there was a lot of ferment going on in the neighborhood. There was also Jane Adams became the uh, the garbage collector <laughs> for the ward because she many people objected to the rotting carcasses of horses and uh, feces in the streets. And uh, it was just ridiculous. So Jane Adams got uh, assigned to be the, the garbage collector of the 19th Ward. Uh, she couldn't vote yet. There was no election because women were not allowed to vote. So she had to be appointed <laughs> as the garbage commissioner. I mean, these women found a way. They would uh, just find a way. Kristen, what do you think the message is from your uh, audio play uh, for today? Yeah. Uh, the, the personal message I take from studying Jane Addams is that you shouldn't put yourself into a, a silo and just decide you can only do one thing, that you should do as much as you can, whether or not you're an expert, and just try to learn and listen to other people and try to make, you know, loose collectives and do stuff and be open to change, but not consider yourself to only do one thing. That's the biggest uh, how will people, people can actually get this online if they go to uh, St. Jane and the Wicked Wicks, they'll find it, right? Yeah, it's both on YouTube. You can watch it in full on YouTube if you just look up St. Jane and the Wicked Wicks. But you can also go to more of a backstory about it with, with photos. And it's also split into episodes if you go to stjaneplay.com. stjaneplay.com. That's like the website that contains the YouTube and a lot of other stuff within it. And I'd like to say some thanks to uh, Summit Gulf, who designed that website, and also to the production team, which consists of Doug. Douglas Post, the director, Dan Dietrich did the mixing and editing, Diana Lawrence was the music director, Tom Cortese worked out all the piano arrangements and performances, Judy Solomon did the website design, and Nia O'Reilly Amandes did the design of the poster. So that's just the production team. Then there were all the amazing actors, singers, singer actors, every one of them uh, professional actors. It was not an equity cast, but it was done with auditions, um, all professional actors. And um, in the role of Jane Addams is the well-known Kathy Cowan, who has done many productions around Chicago. And now she's thrilled about having kind of channeled Jane Addams. We'll see where that goes. <laughs> and Becky Keeshan plays, plays the remarkable Nellie Wicks. She's just astonishing. Uh, sings like a 12-year-old, which is when Nellie comes on the scene. And then by the end, she's 27. <laughs> and a, a married woman in her third marriage with a lot of children. Maddie Sachs plays Julia Lathrop. Monica Schaflick plays Ellen Gates Starr. Frankie Leo Bennett plays Nellie's sidekick, her younger brother, Gene Wicks. He's spectacular in his part. Patrick Burns plays George Wicks and also John Dewey. He sings songs with Jane as John Dewey. Therese Harold plays the remarkable role of the evil Addie Wicks. I mean, she's the Wicked Wicks in a, in a nutshell, does it so well. Kingsley Day plays Richard Crane. Richard Crane was very important in the 1893 World's Fair, which is also part of this show. Um, and he helped to found the Mary Crane Day Nursery because his wife adored Jane Addams. Many times these wealthy industrialists, their wives who were into charity work and all that, they considered Jane Addams to be their northern star. And so they managed to get a lot of money out of their husbands. <laughs> <laughs> and then let, John, me, let me ask you, uh, you know, uh, long before I knew you as a, uh, a playwright now, 
I have known you as a, not only an activist, but a singer. And the last time I heard you sing was at the memorial for uh, Chuy Negrete at the Mexican uh, Museum of Art. And how about you take us out now and transition us into our next guest with a tune? Because I ask you to bring your guitar back to your bedroom there. Yes. Very good. In the lighthouse. So I'm I'm going to sing this funny song that Nellie is supposed to sing when she comes back to Chicago after spending some of her early years in upstate New York with her grandmother. So it's like everything started out so great and then she was went straight to hell in Chicago. So it goes like this. I am forgetting how to talk. My gram said I spoke like an angel. I had pretty things to say that nobody would mock, but now I've gone straight to hell in Chicago. You don't need lots of words to get yourself across. Fancy talk won't get you very far. You gotta learn to cuss or even throw a punch if you walk home from work past a bar. Oh, I Toes pointed straight up again my head. A couple of years more I would have made the ladies gawk, but now I've gone straight to hell in Chicago. You can't walk like a lady in an alley full of rats or when the bottom of my shoe falls apart. If Graham is looking down, I'm sure she's got a frown. I kicking with my skirts up like a tart. Oh, I am forgetting how to read. I used to love reading about heroes and kings and Longfellow's poems. I'd read them by the hour, but now I've gone straight to hell in Chicago. A book takes so long, I'd rather sing a song. And books are very costly, you know. Besides those moving pictures, tell the story quicker. So it's off to the arcade, I love to go. Oh, I am forgetting how to think. I used to have free time and tea time and friends. I'd sit in the garden, I'd ponder everything. But now I've gone straight to hell in Chicago. Tell me, who can think? deep in a sink of scalding water half the day. And how can I be thinking when the open sewer's stinking and the bed bugs always have their way? Oh, nowadays I cannot talk or think or read or write or talk like a lady anymore. I'll tell you one and all, it's a devil of a ball when you've gone straight to hell in Chicago. Kristen Lems, thank you so much. The play is St. Jane and the Wicked Wicks, and people will find it on YouTube. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in the in the real life. Thank uh, you. And they're not too far off. It was great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. On everybody, stay tuned. We're going to be right back. Uh, well, we don't have to go anywhere, really. We're taking a little station break, and then we're going to bring in Larry Sufferton. So Stay tuned, get yourself some coffee, drink of water, whatever you have to do. We'll be right back with a little bit more of this week's Live from the Heartland. Like the pine trees lining the winding road, I've got a name, I've got a name. Like the singing bird and the croaking toad, I've got a name, I've got a name. And I carry it with me like my daddy did. Hey, welcome back. We're here with the Live from the Heartland show. And uh, our next guest today, uh, you can see him on the screen, is uh, the Cook County Commissioner, Larry Sufferton. Good morning to you, Larry. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me. I, uh, it's always good to see you. We, uh, we, before we started this uh, Zoom tape here with you, we talked a little baseball. Uh, but we're going to start off with a, a few more serious things. Well, baseball is a serious deal. Baseball is serious. It, it is. is. It is. 
And uh, we both love Chicago teams. You love one, I like another. So we'll talk about that later. But welcome back to the show. You used to come on pretty regularly. We had you both in the studio as well as on the stage at the Heartland Cafe. Uh, you've been a longtime member of the Cook County Board, and you are now retiring. So tell us what the Cook County Board does and uh, why it matters to people living in the county and in Chicago. Well, it's, as I've often said, it is stealth government. Nobody really knows what we do, and uh, we try to keep it that way so that the, the people are happy with us. But uh, we, we do, uh, we're a large government. We, you know, if we were a state in the union, we'd be the 19th largest state. Uh, we're five and a quarter million people. Uh, we run the largest court system in the United States, the Circuit Court of Cook County, which is paid for by our citizens, not by the state of Illinois. We have, unfortunately, one of the largest single-site jails in the world at the Cook County Jail. Uh, we run the hospital system that is the largest owned by a local unit of government uh, in the uh, Midwest. Uh, and we have the forest preserves because I get also to be a forest preserve commissioner. And we, we assess the value of your property. We collect your property taxes for ourselves and for the other governments. Uh, and we do all of the vital records, your, your birth certificate, your death certificate, your marriage license, all of those things go through Cook County. So that's, that's who we are. And in this pandemic, we're, we're one of, uh, in my district, five health departments that have been trying to deal with the pandemic. Wow, well, the county certainly is a formidable operation. Uh, <clears throat> is it bigger in scope, uh, budget-wise or not, from the city of Chicago? Well, the, the, the city's budget is bigger because the city is a, uh, has a lot more direct services. Like I, you know, I don't pick up your garbage. I don't put change the light bulbs on your street lights. We do have some county highways, and some of them are within the city of Chicago. Ashland Avenue uh, is a county highway in in the city of Chicago. But uh, for the our, our budget is eight billion dollars, uh, and I, I think the city budget is somewhere above thirteen billion. So. They're, they spend more money but uh, because they provide more direct services. Yeah, I think the people should pay more attention to what the county does. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we're the only home rule county in the state, so we have a lot of authority. Uh, we have our unincorporated areas have been shrinking. It's about 10% of our land mass. Uh, in my district, I only have uh, one little area that is unincorporated, Michael. Uh, it is the supposedly the richest block in the county. It's Woodley Road. And so um, uh, when the people on Woodley Road want to put in a new uh, tennis court or swimming pool, uh, they have to come to the county and get a zoning variance. Uh, but uh, that's my role in unincorporated Cook. Is it true you could do uh, put a swimming pool in somewhere in the county, but in the city you can't put swimming pools in your backyard? I don't know what the city's uh, laws I'm, I'm are. Not, you can still you, you can still build a swimming pool in, in unincorporated Cook, but the majority of suburban Cook is in municipalities. So it, it, just like Chicago would rule, Evanston would rule, or Skokie or Lincolnwood, the the, the communities, whatever their zoning would be what would determine if you could build a swimming pool. So why are you retiring, Larry, a young guy like yourself? Well, Michael, I've been there 20 years, which is what I started out to do. Uh, I ran for office when I was 55. Uh, my kids had finished college at that point. Um, I thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, and it's the right thing to leave now. I mean, you know, I'm not particularly anxious to die in office. Uh, I, I would... Uh, like, like to see some of the younger people who have been involved in government take a stronger role. And uh, it, it's the right time. I turned 75 in October and the, this term will end on uh, uh, the first Monday of December. So, uh, and right now, uh, since we've had the, the filings and challenges, uh, there's only one person running to replace me and that's Josina Marita, who's a marvelous young woman who, uh, has been on the water reclamation board, and I think she'll do a great job 
as a county and forest preserve commissioner. No, Josina is a wonderful person. She's been on the show a lot. And uh, actually, around this Asian hate that was going on, she came on and gave us a really detailed uh, history of, uh, of, excuse me, Asian American activism. And uh, we're rooting for her a lot. Are there any other uh, younger people challenging other members of the board? Are there any, uh, any races for the county board that people should be aware of and pay attention to? Well, there are three of us who have announced we're not running for re-election. Uh, one is uh, Commissioner Pete Silvestri, uh, and his district is uh, in the suburbs and a little bit of the city on the northwest side. Uh, and I think there are five or six people running there. Uh, and, and for those voters, they'll need to be careful. The other is Commissioner Deborah Sims in the far south part of the city and sub suburban area. And I believe there are four people running to replace her, including a couple of very bright young people. But I, you know, I think there are challenges uh, to a few of the other commissioners. Uh, but you know, we this last time around, we had seven new commissioners, and they're all relatively young people, and they've all been doing a pretty exceptional job. So uh, I'm I'm comfortable that the county is going to be in good hands. Uh, what are your, your sort of future hopes for the board and the role of the, that the county government plays in people's lives? Uh, where can things be improved and where are things lacking? Well, I, I think that we've learned a lot from the pandemic. And as I said earlier, my district is the only district in the county in which I had five active health departments trying to deal with the pandemic. And that meant five separate rules for how to find protective equipment, for how to find testing, how to find contract tracing, how to get vaccines, how to mask, all of those key components. And my, my public health departments were Chicago, Evanston, Skokie, Suburban Cook with our Cook County Health Department, and then the state. And so one of the things I would hope both the state legislature and the county board will do is find a way to kind of streamline all these public health factors, because in the early days of this pandemic, we were scrambling something terrible, and we had everybody giving contradictory instructions. Uh, I thought the governor did a great job, but the governor has limited power, and he has to every 30 days reissue his declaration of disaster, and, and that's just crazy. So I, uh, one of the things I hope for is that people will do a forensic analysis of what happened in this pandemic. And as we get ready for the future that we streamline and make our public health uh, arm of government stronger. How would we make it stronger? I, I think that uh, one, we need to have more centralized authority uh, because we, we need to have the rules be the same at the city of Chicago or in Evanston or, or in Skokie. And we didn't have that. And I think that that caused confusion. We need to make sure that resources, be it PPE or vaccines, are readily available to everybody so we don't have people running around as they were saying, well, if I go out to the, the Walgreens on uh, Stony Island, I can get my shot. But if I try and get one here in Rogers Park, I can't or I can't get one in Evanston unless I've registered with the health department. All those things need to be streamlined and to give people confidence that we are protecting their health. You know, on, on the, the virus, uh, do you think that we're rolling back a little too quickly on the masks? And do you think that, and what do you think about uh, money for uh, continued testing and stuff is not included in the new bill through Congress? Well, I, I think that there are a lot of people who are deceiving themselves and thinking that we, we are back to normal, okay? Yeah. I just did something at the Botanic Garden. I took my four of my grandchildren there all of them stayed masked everywhere they go. They and their parents have decided that others can change, but they want to keep their masks on and for a while longer. I, I am concerned that we're, we're removing masks too quickly. People are thinking we're back to normal when we have potential other variants out there and we don't know how strong they will be or won't be. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we didn't, we were worried about not having enough beds in the hospitals and our ICUs were, didn't have ventilators. And, uh, you know, we're, we're so close to that period of time that to forget it, it'd be a huge mistake. We have to learn from it 
and, and get ready. So I would be more vigilant. Uh, I'm a Dr. Fauci fan. Uh, and I, you know, I think that, uh, uh, you know, as he said, uh, the new variant, we don't know enough about it to know if, if we're going to be protected from it. And I'm, I'm prepared to probably have to go get another booster just as I get a flu shot every year. Uh, as we, but we need to watch and talk about the science. Uh, you know, uh, I flew in from New York uh, recently. And once again, when you come over Chicago land, you see all kind of trees surrounding the city. And uh, I know from uh, future past talks with you, when you've been on the Live from the Heartland show and been at the Heartland Cafe, you've been very involved in the Forest Preserve. And why don't you tell people what a little bit of a wonder it is and how important it is and, and how uh, you've helped to improve it. Well, the best part of my job was being elected to two public offices, the second one being to be a commissioner of the Forest Preserve District. I, we, we are in a, a situation where no other community has an urban forest like we do so close to the population center. And we have 72,000 acres of forest. They call that the emerald necklace that you see as you fly into to, uh, uh, O'Hare. Uh, and you, you realize that we have streams, the Desplaines River running through there. We, 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 we have uh, on the south side cliffs and, and high, actually high points in the county that you, you can do mountain climbing within the forest preserve. But uh, more importantly, it's a little over 100 years ago that the forest preserve was created. And the people from 100 years ago knew what they were doing preserving this land to give it to us. And it's now our responsibility to continue to preserve this land and give it to the next generation. So one of the last things that I've done on the board is I sponsored, and it'll be on the November ballot this year, a referendum to increase slightly the property tax levy for the Forest Preserve District. Unlike the county, which is a home rule unit, as I described, the Forest Preserve is a non-home rule unit and is very limited on how it can raise funds. It only can get them from property taxes or from fees. So when you buy a picnic permit, that fee helps us run the forest preserve. We are falling way behind in really maintaining in our land. And so this is a modest, about a $44 million a year increase. To the average household, it will be an annual amount under $15. And uh, I would hope that people will vote yes, because <clears throat> during this pandemic, we've seen record numbers of people who needed to go outside, needed to do something as a recreation, and went and they, they biked, they, they hiked, they, they played uh, with frisbees in the forest preserve, the, uh, canoed. All of those things are, are important, and the, the future of the forest preserve is going to be dependent upon this referendum. And I think it'll be, if it passes, it will be one of the best things that I ever did as a Forest Preserve Commissioner. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I think uh, was involved in the Forest Preserve was returning some land to original prairie state. Uh, it, is, is that still going on? It, it was an issue with some people, uh, you know, burning down certain trees or right. taking them out to recreate the prairie. Well, absolutely. We, you know, we have master stewards in all of our uh forest preserves. And the North Branch has, uh, the North Branch of the Chicago River, some of the best stewards. And we are constantly getting rid of the buckthorn, which is the invasive species that came to us from Europe. We're, we're getting rid of garlic mustard, the things that, that crowd in on the floor of the forest and no, don't allow things to grow. And we're returning the certain areas to the prairies they were by getting rid of the trees that were never intended to be there. They, they are not native trees. Where this is not something where you're taking down oaks or the, the trees that are native to our area. It is primarily these buckthorns, which are huge. We also lost a lot of ash trees because of the ashborn uh, beetles that were going around in a pretty much decimated uh, ash trees in, in our, our area. But yes, we, these master stewards, and there are almost any day of the week you can find a group that's going out to work. So that if you're interested, go to the Forest Preserve website and, and go out and join a group. Uh, and and they're, they're always fun. 
We do use prescribed burns. There was a time when there were a lot of people who were opposed to them, but prescribed burns return the floor of the forest back to its native state and allow for new growth to, to come. So, uh, but we, we are much more uh, aggressive than we've been. But again, if we don't get some more funds, we're not gonna be able to keep up with it because our 72,000 acres is a huge amount of land. Uh, in case anyone just tuned in, you're listening to Live from the Heartland Show, and we're talking with Larry Sufferton of the Cook County Board. Uh, Larry, uh, let's, uh, let's go back to a little bit of politics. Uh, how do you think the mayor is doing and her prospects for a re-election, and how do you think the governor is doing? And Because uh, he's getting some opposition with a lot of big funding from conservative Republicans and uh, you know, uh, every time he comes, the, the opposition comes on, he makes me nuts. What's your take on our... Well, the, the, the first race coming up will be the governor's in uh, November. And I, I think J.B. Pritzker has done a phenomenal job in his four years. Uh, he is a very talented person. I, I knew him when he lived here in Evanston. And uh, when he ran for Congress in 1998, I was with Jan Schakowsky. Me too, and I feel so yeah. bad that when... When uh, Pritzker came to the heartland, I wasn't real friendly to him. You well, know? <laughs> uh, I wasn't unfriendly to him. I, I had known him through gun control issues where he had been very active. But, but, you know, he was a young man at that point. And I think he learned lessons from that campaign that it benefited him now. Uh, he, he is uh, someone who I think in this pandemic, uh, along with uh, Dr. Ngazi and Aniki, uh, has done a remarkable job of protecting the lives of people in, in Illinois. And I think the Republicans who are running against him uh, really don't have issues, and they're trying to create uh, their own personas uh, that aren't factual. I mean, the, the mayor of Aurora is all of a sudden, he'd been a Democrat, and now all of a sudden, uh, and he'd been a public defender, and then he was a state's attorney, and you know, and now he wants to make himself into having been a, a, a some kind of a right wing general. I, yeah, I it, it isn't gonna it isn't gonna play. I, I think that the governor will do well, and I think the Democrats will do well in this state, no matter how much money is being spent against them. The, the case for the mayor of Chicago, I think, is uh, uh, still an open book. Uh, uh, I think that it, it. I'm struck by how little support she has within the city council considering the powers of the mayor's office and how prior mayors were able to keep uh, members of the council with them. I'm surprised at how little influence she's having on the remap for the city of Chicago. Uh, and I, I, I expect that she will have a very difficult reelection campaign. And again, if there's as many candidates as there were four years ago, she might not even be one of the two people in the finals, uh, even though she carried 50 wards four years ago. Who do you think might run against her? I mean, Tony Preckwinkle is probably going to stay with the county. Uh, the former Secretary of Education is uh, Arnie Duncan has said he's not going to run. Um, any hints on uh, what people should be looking for? Well, I, I would keep an eye on Congressman Mike Quigley, who's been a guest on your show, a, a well-known Loyola graduate. Uh, I think that uh, he has an interest, but he is devoting himself now to his role as an appropriation uh, subcommittee chair in, in Washington and, and being a co-chair of the Ukrainian Congress uh, caucus. Um, but I, I, I think that Mike, who came out of the city council, you may remember that he worked for Alderman Bernie Hansen in the 44th Ward before he got elected to the county board. He even ran for alderman against Helen Schiller in the 46th Ward, lost that, that race. But he knows he knows uh, city government, and I think he'd be a formidable opponent. Um, well, I'm not sure if there's anything, uh, any uh, any comments on uh, what's going on in the Ukraine and the the potential influx of Ukrainians coming to Cook County. Well, you know we we are working and anticipating Ukrainians coming here. We are, we've received a number of people from. Afghanistan, uh, our, we're working on trying to help people with housing. Uh, Jan Schakowsky has been uh, remarkable on this. Commissioner Bridget Degnan has done a lot of things with the Ukrainian community. At our last meeting a week ago, 
we uh, passed a uh, ordinance allowing the Ukrainian flag to fly in the Daly Center. Uh, so one of the flag where the uh, flag of Cook County used to be, that flagpole now has the Ukrainian flag to show solidarity with the people. But you watch this, and, and Michael, uh, having been in areas with, that were war zones and seen the destruction, th this is unbelievable. I mean, this yeah. is Aleppo all over again. This is Sarajevo all over again. But this is even worse because what really the Russians are trying to do is destroy the economy of this country. And, and this morning, as we're talking, I heard uh, that there were over 6 million people who are on the move, who are becoming refugees. 6 million people. That's more people than there are in the entire Cook County at five and a quarter million people. And uh, it, it, this is a, a tragedy. And I don't know how we deal with Putin uh, because he seems to only understand one thing, and that's military force. And if we get into military force with him, the specter of a nuclear war is there. So in the meantime, I think that the only thing we can do is pray. Well, I want to thank you, Larry, for coming on the Live from the Heartland show. Uh, and uh, do you have any parting words for us at the end of this interview? Well, I want to just say thank you. And I want to thank you through the 20 years for the opportunities I've had to come on to Live at the Heartland to talk about issues that are important to Rogers Park and to the areas around us. And I want to thank uh, you and Katie for being great hosts and uh, to Loyola for allowing you to uh, use their airtime. So, so I, I, I <laughs> now look it forward, goes on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I look forward to being with you guys soon. Thank All right, you. Larry, I, I, I love you and thank you so much. Right. Bye bye. We'll see you, brother. Uh, you're listening to Live from the Heartland. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, I think we're just going to stay on camera here and uh, finish up. Uh, we got some sunshine coming in. Uh, we'll see how much of our faces you can see. Um, we, uh, we do a little sports report right now. And uh, the NC2A has not, the, you know, the final, uh, what do you call it, the uh, Sweet 16 we're in right now, basketball. We're talking National Collegiate Athletic Association. Uh, uh, tournament is underway. The Big Ten has not fared that well. Purdue plays on Friday. That's today when we record. Um, so we'll see. We're looking forward to baseball, um, White Sox and Cubs and uh, just teams in general. Uh, we are concerned about Brittany Gaynor, uh, a basketball standout star uh, from the um, in National Women's Basketball Association who is being held in Russia over uh, charges of having hash oil. Uh, she's over there because she plays for a very uh, uh, wealthy guy who owns a big team and makes more money in Russia than she does when playing in the States. So we'll keep you posted on that. And uh, like we say at a lot of uh, endings of our show that Colin Kaepernick of the National Football League is not uh, with any team, although he is being looked at by some teams. Um, in memoriam, um, I watched uh, two videos the other night. One person is still alive, um, and um, that's Nancy Pelosi. And it was a very exciting and interesting interview. And then I saw an interview on a uh, like a, <clears throat> a documentary on Madeleine Albright, who passed this week. And she's very impressive, although I was always quite critical of her. And um, wherever you stand, um, there were some good things that she did. So may she rest in peace. And we'd like to just say that uh, for 25 years, we've been bringing you the live from the Heartland show. Uh, we've been calling it Heartland at home, uh, doing it via Zoom. And it allows us to uh, talk to people all over the country and even around the world. Uh, but you, if you miss it on a Saturday morning, you can always get it at youtube.com slash Heartland Media. It's also podcasts on Spotify and Google, and it goes up on Can TV. Uh, I want to thank a whole bunch of people who make this show possible. There's Lynn Orman, our music producer. There's Emilio Davis, who is here today and is the producer and the tech guy. And we want to thank uh, uh, Gwen Brown over at Loyola University and Luis down there in Veracruz. Uh, if you have any uh, desires for people to have them on the show, 
or if you have any memories of the old Heartland Cafe or earlier versions on the show, send them to me at fatback at AOL.com. So we encourage you all to do good in the world because the world needs all the good that we do. All power to the people. Have a great week. Out of